You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast. And we are recording this episode on Thursday the 18th of January. This week we're going to talk about a sensational find in northern Sweden of rare earth metals and what it means for Sweden and the wider world. We'll dig into Sweden's EU presidency and how we'll know if it's successful. We'll chat about a new sleeper train service from Stockholm to Berlin. We will listen to an interview with the ambassador of Malaysia to Sweden. We'll discuss how Sweden has reacted to furious Turkish complaints about the hanging of an effigy of President Erdogan. We'll examine an emerging debate about whether dual citizenship means divided loyalties. And since I'm re-recording this intro after the fact, I can say that we'll also talk about a state secretary's eel fishing scandal that has prompted calls for his resignation, as well as news stories about the sentencing of two brothers for spying and a new military aid package for Ukraine. I'm Paul Amani and I'm joined today by James Savage in Stockholm, Emma Lovegrain in Simmershamn and Richard Orange in Malmö. Richard, welcome back. I mentioned last week that you're in a new role at The Local. Can you just tell us what you're doing there? Yes, I'm the new Nordic editor, which is basically it's a contributing editor who's going to bring some of the brilliance I brought to local Sweden over the last, how long was it? 10 months or something, <laughs> to Norway and Denmark. So there's just basically more stories on the site, a bit more content, as they call it, to sort of bolster what those sites have. But so far, I've basically been hopping in to cover for Becky because she's vabbing. And I imagine <laughs> there'll be quite a lot of that. So when, when the different editors and reporters are off, I'm just someone who's always going to be there to jump in. So they're not sort of scrabbling around to find freelancers. So basically, I'm more sort of Nordic's dog's body, I think, rather than Nordic <laughs> editor. But, um, but, that's, that, but that's what it is. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, actually, because I've edited the Norway site and the Denmark site in the past. And I've, it's quite interesting to have that broader perspective and to be able to kind of compare and contrast between the different countries, yeah. which are very similar, but also very different in their own ways. You've had a fantastic year running the local Sweden. And we've attracted loads and loads of new members, hundreds of new members, thousands of new members. So I'm sure you're going to bring the same magic touch everywhere. Definitely. Thanks for that, Richard. And how about the rest of you, uh, James, Emma, anything new with you? Um, no. No. God. Nothing's happened here, really. Jesus, I've got to have a more interesting week no, next that's, week. No, that's fantastic. We can just skip the small talk and get straight into <laughs> the rest of Excellent. the podcast. 
<laughs> Let's do it. So um, the European Commission came to Kiruna in northern Sweden last week to properly kick off Sweden's stint as host of the rotating European Union presidency. And while they were there, the Swedish government and the LKAB mining company announced that miners had found Europe's largest deposit of rare earth metals. How significant is this find, Emma? It's pretty significant. The EU, basically, it wants to phase out new vehicles that emit carbon dioxide by 2035. And that's just in over a decade, which will effectively ban the sale of new cars that rely on petrol and diesel. And instead, they want to transition into fossil fuel production, for example, electric cars. And these metals that have been found, they're used in the manufacturing of electric cars, and also like other green energy stuff like wind power turbines, for example. So they're essential to the, the so-called green transition, as politicians like to call it. And at the same time, the EU, for perhaps obvious reasons, doesn't want to be dependent on third countries like Russia, like China, and especially the latter. They currently produce a lot of the raw materials that are needed for this sort of thing. Like the EU's current demand for rare earth metals, it gets met entirely by imports from other countries, and mainly China. So in that sense, the fact that this find was discovered in an EU country is a massive boost for Swedish and EU leaders. Similar deposits have been discovered there, so this is not the first find, but it's by far the biggest one so far. If we were to start mining this, it would put Sweden exactly where it wants to be, which is at the forefront of climate and tech. I mean, it's not exactly a coincidence that it was announced when the entire Swedish government and the entire European Commission just happened to be in Kiruna. Oh my goodness, what are you suggesting, Emma? And, <laughs> and uh, when, when, does, when does Sweden expect to be able to start extracting these rare metals? It will take some time, Paul. So the next step for LKAB. I'm going to say LKAB because that's how you pronounce it in Swedish. Uh, so the next step for them now is to submit an application for exploitation concession, which basically means that they will be able to investigate the conditions for mining to see whether it's feasible at all to mine. It's to mine it sustainably and to mine it profitably. So they expect that it will take at least 10 to 15 years before they can actually make use of this deposit. Mm. And El Coabie, actually, which is owned by the Swedish state, it's, it's a really interesting company because in many ways it really is leading the way in the green transition, along with a bunch of other northern Swedish companies. Like, for example, they, they've said that they want to invest 400 billion Swedish kronor up until 2040 to switch all of their production from iron ore pallets to carbon-free sponge iron. And as I mentioned, rare earth metals like the ones that they found here can also be used to produce environmentally friendly products. On the other hand, it's also hard to argue that mining in itself does not have an impact on the environment. Like, they're currently in the process of literally moving the city of Kiruna three kilometers because it's no longer safe for it to be where it is because of the mine. And there have also been several conflicts between the Sami community, uh, that's the indigenous people in Scandinavia, and the mining industry in northern Sweden because it threatens their reindeer herding. So let's just say that I wouldn't expect the permit application to go through completely without a hitch. 
The the thing about LKRB that I find is is extraordinary. This um, their green iron ore project is that if it goes through, it will mean thirty five million tons of uh, carbon dioxide less is emitted a year. Which is I don't people don't understand how huge that is. I mean that's the entire annual emissions of a country like Switzerland in like one company's project, which I just think is is gobsmacking that you can make such, you know, every single person in Switzerland, everything they do, that amount of emissions will be reduced if they switch to green iron ore, which I think is amazing. But it also really shows that, you know, that Sweden's status as a, as a, as a country with a lot of heavy industry means that it does also have, you know, huge a huge responsibility as well to take a lead in the climate transition. We'll add links in the show notes to articles about this potentially very lucrative find. And we'll also link to an earlier episode where we um, talked about this issue issue that you just mentioned, the history of discrimination of the Sami people and Sami herding rights. So Sweden has been at the helm of the rotating six-month EU Council presidency since the 1st of January, which is why the commission was up in Kiruna in the first place. But what does the EU presidency actually entail? What are the main items on the agenda? And how will Sweden know if it's been a success? To answer these questions and others, I had a chat this week with Louise Bengtsson from the Swedish Institute for European Policy Studies. And I started by asking her what the agenda looks like for the next few months and what kind of challenges Sweden faces. The agenda is packed. One reason is because of the timing and the legislative cycle. So there will be elections to the European Parliament and a new commission in um, 2024, which means that a lot of files, as they say in Brussels, are now up for like final negotiations. So there are over 300 issues and uh, 2,000 meetings that uh, Sweden will have to to deal with. So it's there's already quite a lot. The commission is also very active and it keeps proposing new things, of course, uh, related also to the fact that we're in the middle of a situational war on on European territory. And how will Sweden know in, in June if its presidency has succeeded? I think this is a really interesting question because there are many there are many layers to it. Uh, of course, in Brussels, Sweden will be judged on whether it has moved the common agenda forward. This is the main task of the rotating yeah. presidency. Yeah. And from that perspective, it's a little bit of a like glorified, like, <laughs> you know, uh, just a chairman uh, position that we have. <laughs> so we just need to focus on muddling through and, you know, building our network capital for, for the future, you know, as good diplomats. So that's a very important aspect. And of course, uh, there's always uh, a temptation for for uh, national leaders to also pick some domestic points if we managed also to put the Swedish mark on the on the presidency. But uh, I think politicians are also very aware that during the presidency, the, the role as honest broker, it's very much uh, what is expected. So there's not too much room for those kind of initiatives. If they're not framed in the European interest, in the European general interest, and, and you know, something that, that more or less everyone will, will, uh, will welcome. And Ulf Christensen has talked about support for Ukraine, that being possibly the most important challenge and the most important indicator mm. for success. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, you're completely right, uh, of course. And I think so far the general assessment is that we're, we're quite surprised to the extent, uh, you know, uh, that we've seen so much unity. Um, yeah. But of course, if if sanctions, for instance, or if certain responses start to affect member states in an asymmetrical way, then um, it can be more difficult to maintain unity. So this will be 
probably the, the, the most important task, of course, for the presidency. But as I said, it's not only up to Sweden there. I'm just curious about some sort of facts and figures. You talked about how the presidency has a kind of diminished role compared to how it used to be. But does it does it cost Sweden a lot of money and are a lot of civil servants involved in making it as smooth as it can be? This is, of course, uh, um, uh, a big cost, but it's also a big investment for, for Sweden, as I said, yeah. because... Um, if we manage well and if we've prepared well, this will be to our advantage later on because we build uh, good diplomatic relations that, that can serve us later on. I know that uh, the fact that the informal ministerials are mainly taking part in, in this conference center in Arlanda, close to Arlanda, has been mentioned as kind of a measure to, <laughs> to save money. Yes. It's cheaper, I suppose, to organize everything there, on the other hand, maybe the Kirna trip that the commission just uh, did also probably cost a lot of money. So I don't know. Yeah, I read I read an article on that, and it might be what you're referring to. There was an article in in Dagens Nyheter about the Arlanda Conference Center, and the article seemed to suggest that Sweden has a reputation as a bit of a cheapskate in Europe. Is that true to say? That That's correct when it comes to our positions, when it comes to budgetary uh, matters, of course. Um, yeah. Yeah. We've also been, we've always been associated with, with these groups of frugal countries. Yeah. Frugal is, frugal is maybe a nicer way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> and in terms of how many people are involved in the presidency? So in terms of civil servants at the um, Perm Rep in Brussels. Uh, the suites have been reinforced approximately by 80 additional staff, which brings the total number of employees to around 200. Okay, yeah, so that's quite a lot. That's quite a lot. And then, of course, on top of that, all the additional reinforcements in, in Stockholm yeah. at the ministries. And also the agencies are involved, the Swedish Myndigheter. Um, yeah have quite a lot of work because of the presidency. Yeah, so it's a big it's a big undertaking. Will there be a huge sigh of relief when it's all over? I think so. I've heard that uh, the presidencies are very intense. <laughs> Once it's over, everyone will be very tired, I think, but hopefully also quite inspired. And um, yeah, the work continues, I suppose, for, for yeah. Sweden in the EU after this. So we'll, we're also hoping for a, a better debate in Sweden about European affairs. And we hope that the presidency can help to cast light on, on what's going on in Brussels. Louise Bengtsson there from the Swedish Institute for European Policy Studies. And we also have an article with more from the interview that you can find in the show notes. News emerged this week that Sweden's national rail company SJ or SE is operating a sleeper service from Stockholm to Berlin from the end of March. Can you, Richard, tell us a bit about how this is going to work and how much it will cost? Yes, well, it's basically an extension of the service they launched last September from Hamburg to Malmö. So it will leave Stockholm at 5.30 in the afternoon or evening and it will stop at Hamburg Central Station at the bright and early time of 6am. So, you know, you've got time for a leisurely breakfast before your business meeting. And then it will arrive in Berlin at 9am. So you can still get to business meetings on time. So it's, it's pretty convenient. And then on the way back from Berlin to Stockholm, it's about an hour later. So it leaves Berlin at 6.30pm, calls in at Malmö at 10pm and then arrives in Stockholm at 
just before 10 a.m. in the morning. So it's really, I mean, it's a complete game changer for no-fly travel between Stockholm and the and the German capital. I mean, it's if you if you manage to get a good night's sleep, it's it's easier than than flying. We don't know exactly how much it's going to cost, and and um, SJ has this demand-based pricing, so it it, it varies depending on um, that there are cheaper tickets that sell out earlier. But the the Hamburg-Stockholm stretch tends to cost a bit more than a thousand kroner for a one-way ticket at the moment, and you can get it a bit cheaper if you book as soon as tickets are released. So I imagine it'll be slightly more than that, but probably not much more than that. It starts at the end of March, and you can buy tickets. I think tickets are going on sale in February. Okay. Excellent. And are you tempted to try it? I know you have recent experience of taking a night train from Hamburg to Malmö that you mentioned, and we'll put a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to read about your trip. Did it give you a taste for more or did it put you off? No, it definitely gave me a taste for more. I mean, it was it was, it was was super convenient. It actually really saved our bacon because we were otherwise going to have to spend the night in uh, in Hamburg Station, which if anyone's been there at night is not the nicest place to, <laughs> to be with two small kids. But yeah, I mean, if you've been on um, a couchette carriage, in, if you're old enough to have been on a couchette carriage in the 80s or you've taken an SJ, SJA sleeper from Stockholm to Malmö or Stockholm to the north of Sweden, it's exactly like that. It's a standard six berth mm. sleeper with you know nice fresh white sheets that you have to put on yourself it's pretty comfortable and if you um as long as you don't i mean with these couchettes a lot depends on um, in my experience a lot depends on your fellow travelers i mean sometimes i've, I've been on couchettes where where there's been somebody who's like definitely mentally ill in the couchette next to me screaming all night or there's people getting pissed in the cabin next to you but generally it's we all slept really well the staff were brilliant as well it just it had a, there's a definitely a sense of adventure getting a night train i think one thing that struck me richard reading your article was that you were awoken by border guards in denmark yes it's about midnight that they get across the, the Danish border. All you have to do is like reach under your pillow and grab the passports yeah. and kind of wave it at them. And then they look at them and, and go on their way. They, they weren't making everybody come out and show their faces or anything like that. But I, I know what you mean. It, when I found out that they were going to do that, I was a bit, a bit upset seeing as we were getting up at 3.50 in the morning yeah. in Malmö. It's just a sign as well of how completely Schengen has broken down. Yeah. That you know it, it sounds very, very 1980s <laughs> Central Europe getting woken by border guards on a night train yeah it would it would be nice if the eu could try and reinstate schengen properly and get rid of border guards at crossings between schengen countries that's the point on now to the latest in our series of interviews with ambassadors to sweden and today it's the turn of malaysia's nur ashikin mod taib this interview is particularly timely as this was in fact her last week in the role. So a good time to listen to some of the insights she has gleaned from four years in Sweden on everything from why there are so many hardware stores in Sweden to the difficulties of observing Ramadan in such northerly latitudes. And I started by asking her how many Malaysians there are in Sweden. Well, we have about uh, 900 over registered Malaysians mm-hmm. in in Sweden, but I was told that the numbers could be easily, you know, could, could easily go up to about 2,500. Okay, because like yes, there have been uh, many Malaysians who relocated here over the years. Um, there are many Swedish companies in Malaysia. We have about 100 Swedish companies mm-hmm. in Malaysia. So many of them uh, came and worked for the Swedish companies and decided to stay on. Yeah. And some came, you know, for love. You know, they got married, settled down here and raised their families. Can you tell us a little bit about bilateral relations between Malaysia and Sweden? 
Uh, our relations are very good. Uh, our relations was established in 1958, right after we, uh, Malaysia got its independence mm-hmm. in 1957. So I always say that you know uh, Sweden is uh, is is our development partner. So Malaysia now is a high middle income country, and uh, you know much of uh, our development is due to investments and trade by countries like Sweden. Is there much trade between the countries? Uh, yes, well, not as much as we would like to, but trade is about uh, the trade figures is about one billion US dollars uh, in 2021. Sweden is our tenth uh, uh, trading partner among the EU countries. Right. So, in but overall, it's the 45th trading partner for Malaysia. So you've been here, as you said, for four years now. What would you say is the one thing that you found most surprising after moving to Sweden? Well, there are many things actually. Sweden ranks very highly, you know, in many indices, right? But uh, I think for me, it's the cost of living. The labour charges are very high, and people do things themselves. Yeah. And then soon, then you know, we see so many hardware stores and all that. And after living here for a while, we realise why. <laughs> so um, I think it. it It's quite similar in other countries in Europe, but more so here. I mean, things are very expensive. You know, to get a haircut is very expensive. So my husband, you know, he 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 does he he goes bald because he says it's most cost effective. <laughs> I can I can really relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> so otherwise, surprising things. Well, uh, looking at how the work-life balance here mm-hmm. and how flexible the working uh, 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 environment is, especially during the COVID, uh, people could work from home, and uh, and they are disciplined about it. Yeah. You know, this there's this high level of trust. Yeah. So I, what I find surprising also is in terms of how people deal with uh, sick leave. Because in, in, in Malaysia, you know, when you are sick, you see the doctor and you get a sick leave. Yeah. You know, but here you can just call in and say you're not well. Uh, and then you have the social security taking care of things. And similar to the previous question, what's the best thing about living in Sweden? Oh, I think it's the fresh air, clean water, and the calmness. You know, uh, it's 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 an important city, but it's quite laid back in a sense. Yeah, yeah and things work. Yeah, I think that's what uh, I would remember most about about Stockholm, and how beautiful it is in uh, in the summer. Yeah. Another thing that was in that took a while to get used to is the um, uh, short days in winter and the long days in summer yeah for us who observe the ramadan so uh, it, it it was quite difficult in the past few years because um, the days were very long so we yeah. were fasting for about 18 hours yeah so now it's getting better That's really difficult. I mean, have you ever tried to go to the north of Sweden during Ramadan? <laughs> no, no, I haven't. <laughs> That would have been difficult. Thank you very much for joining us on Sweden in Focus. You're most welcome. Thank you very much. That was the outgoing Malaysian ambassador Nur Ashikin Modtaib, and we wish her well in her future ventures as she departs Sweden. If you'd like to hear more of her thoughts and insights, we will have a longer write-up of the interview on the site in the coming days. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, towards the end of last week, a group called the Swedish Solidarity Committee for Rojava dangled an effigy of Turkey's President Erdogan by its feet from a lamppost near City Hall in Stockholm. In a video, the group explained that this was a reference to Benito Mussolini and was meant to illustrate how dictators end their days. And this incident has further complicated the saga of Turkey's refusal to ratify Sweden's NATO application. James, can you tell us a bit about how this has played out in terms of the official Swedish and Turkish reactions and how the Swedish foreign minister's intervention is being viewed domestically? Right, well, this um, Rashava committee, it's a Kurdish group that's been highly critical, unsurprisingly, of Turkey and Erdogan. Now, the reaction to this, this has put the Swedish government in a in a difficult position because obviously Sweden is trying to suck up to Turkey to um, for, so that Turkey will, will approve its NATO uh, membership. Foreign Minister Tobias Bildström was straight out on Twitter. He condemned the stunt as abhorrent and pointed out that Erdogan is a popularly elected president. Ulf Kristersson, the Prime Minister, also condemned it. He said it was a sabotage against the Swedish NATO application and put Swedish security at risk. Now, these statements received a furious response from um, some free speech advocates uh, in Sweden, including Niels Funke, who's seen as the granddaddy of free speech in Sweden. He said it was wrong of ministers to condemn actions that fall within the bounds of free speech. He was saying that ministers were basically um, going beyond their remit. Some legal experts, though, disagreed with him, including a, for- a former head of legal at the, uh, the foreign ministry, and said that that's a bit of a fundamentalist attitude, that, that ministers are able to, to say things, what they're not able to do is to use their power to restrict free speech. Um, Unsurprisingly, the Turks weren't happy with the Swedish response either. They said it didn't go far enough. Words weren't enough. Erdogan's spokesman demanded that the the action was taken against the groups. And the Swedish ambassador in Ankara was summoned uh, to the foreign ministry for a dressing down, um, as as, as often happens in diplomatic disputes. Also, a trip to Ankara by uh, the Speaker of the Swedish Parliament, Andreas Nolien, was cancelled. Now, on the issue of legal action, Swedish prosecutors did receive a complaint of defamation, but they looked into it and they decided um, not to prosecute and saying that the actions didn't fulfil the criteria for defamation. Anyway, what's the upshot of this? Well, it certainly hasn't moved Sweden's NATO application forward and it may have moved it back a bit, but it's perhaps not the most significant 
event in Sweden's, Sweden's NATO application this week. What's perhaps more significant is a visit by the Turkish Foreign Minister Mevlut Cavusoglu, um, not to Sweden, but to Washington, where one item on the agenda is Turkey's desire to buy American F-16 fighter jets. This is an issue that some in Congress want explicitly to be linked to the issue of Sweden and Finland's NATO accession. So the question is how far the US is prepared to push the issue um, and risk the arms deal and how determined Turkey is to resist that pressure. I don't think necessarily that the fact that they commented on the the Erdogan effigy is that strange. Like if somebody had done a mock execution of a Swedish party leader, like you would have expected fellow party leaders to have opinions about that and condemn it. Uh, what was the most striking to me was the fact that they also published an official statement on the foreign ministry's website yeah. condemning it. And it used like extremely strong language as well. Like the foreign minister's statement is called it reprehensible, shameless act. And that's kind of unusually strong language, isn't it, for Swedish politicians or Swedish Swedes in general? Like I don't think that they would use such strong language even if it had happened to a Swedish party leader. Like they would say things like, This is not okay. And all Swedes would take that to mean reprehensible or shameless, but they wouldn't actually use those words. So it's pretty clear that this was written not for the domestic audience, but to appease Turkey, basically. There was another Turkey-related story this week that has nothing to do with NATO. It relates to the new centre party leader-in-waiting Muharrem Demirok, who has dual Swedish-Turkish citizenship, but has now decided to renounce his Turkish citizenship. What do we know about this story? It's a really interesting story. What happened was a reporter at Aftonbladet, Peter Kadhammer, who's, you know, a veteran uh, left-wing reporter and commentator, he dug into Mure, as he's called, Mure Demirok's background and managed to find out that he was still a Turkish citizen. And then he wrote a story revealing this and he wrote what I found a terrifying article. He started it off saying, you know, I don't mean to question his loyalty and then carried on to say to question his loyalty in every possible way, sort of saying, you know, Turkey demands that its citizens, you know, uphold the honour of, of the nation and you can be put in jail for insulting Erdogan if you're a Turkish citizen. And, and he said the same about China and the same about Russia. And his argument was, he said, what I found most chilling, he said, you know, in a time of open borders, the idea of dual citizenship sounds very nice. But in today's more sort of dangerous times, is it still appropriate? And that logic I find very frightening as a dual citizen myself, because I can really see the debate changing in Sweden and also in other countries in Europe, also in the UK, and to see dual citizenship as somehow having dual loyalties and therefore not to be mm. trusted. And and eventually abolishing mm. it, which which would or be a putting shame so that. many restrictions on dual citizens that it becomes impractical. So you know you know w w would you ban dual citizens from having certain roles in, in in the public sector, for example? There are some roles in the public sector where right mm -hmm. now you need to be a Swedish citizen yeah. to to get the job. But would you would you extend that to say well Swedish citizen and not a dual citizen to get the job? And then it puts it puts people in a, in, in in an invidious position because I think you know having to choose between citizenship is it's a very difficult thing to do if you have to choose between being able to vote in the country, for instance, and have a and have an, a permanent right to live in that country, or giving up the right to perhaps one day go go back to your country of origin and, for instance, look after aging parents yeah. um, for an extended period. You know, to have to choose between those things puts people in a very very difficult position. There is there are good reasons why in a in a in a 
globalised world why dual citizenship is a thing. Now, let, let's see if uh, the Sweden's business and energy minister is prepared to give up her Norwegian citizenship. Indeed, Ebba Bush is um, is a Norwegian citizen too, and also she is she's deputy prime minister. Indeed, right? yeah, you know, in Germany, for instance, where they where they until where they still ban dual citizenship, they have always made it possible for people within the EU from other EU countries to have dual citizenship uh, together with German, but uh, and, and people outside the EU, that's been impossible. So um, and, and and now they're just about to change it and liberalise the system. I think there. it's really interesting with Germany um, that a lot of their rules around migration and citizenship are going in a more liberal direction, just as Sweden is going the other way. Denmark too. Denmark is also liberalising its migration rules after having incredibly strict rules, bringing in incredibly strict rules over the last sort of 20 years or so. They're now saying, you know, our businesses can't get workers, people can't bring their families to Denmark, and they're, they're pushing the other way. That is, so it's, it's interesting to see. It, it's quite, in a way, it brings a bit of hope to me because it seems like there is a sort of a shape of this kind of populist wave, anti-immigration sentiment, and then it does seem like it's a wave that will, you know, that there is a, there is a, there is a future where, where it gets easier again where the opinion changes and we move maybe in a more globalised, open direction. Will Sweden have to lose its tech companies before it, before it starts to realise that it needs immigration and that immigration isn't all about charity, it's about also self-interest? And did any of you see the story about um, PM Nilsson, who's one of the Prime Minister's closest aides, formerly a leader writer? He was, he was appointed by Ulf Kristersson after the election. Uh, did you see the story about him being fined? No this week what happened for what i saw something on twitter but i haven't got on top of he it he was I... he was fined for illegally fishing uh for eel <laughs> which is an endangered species so yeah he was he was out he was out fishing with all this specialized equipment and the authorities uh the, i can't remember the name of the agency it's called hafs and something mindy hirten they sent one of their one of their boats out and intercepted him <laughs> And uh, sort of confronted him and said, "Is this is this your eel fishing equipment?" And he and said, "No, he's, sir." And he, he said, "No, it absolutely is not." <laughs> no. <laughs> I would have loved to have been there when he got caught. Like I'm sort of picturing him out in his little boat in, at dawn, secretly fishing for eel, and then suddenly this big boat shows up, flashing light, boom, boom, you're under arrest. <laughs> And he's a very good-looking, striking man. I once met somebody who described him as panique snig. <laughs> what, because you get, yeah. a, you, you get into a panic when you meet him because he's so... He's so hot. handsome and hunky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no comment. No it is actually, comment. It's actually extre- an extremely bad thing to do because eels are the most extraordinary, extraordinary animal and they are about to die out. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's, it's, and, and, and you are actually still allowed to fish them if... You are one of a descendant of historic eel fishers. Like there's the fact there's this group of families in in Skorna on the eel coast around Aarhus who can who can fish with impunity <laughs> because it's seen as part of their heritage. We should point out though that this all happened in 2021, so it was sort of early autumn 2021 when he was when he was out fishing, and he was he was then he was later phoned up by the Karlskrona police in December of that year. And he denied everything there as well. But he sort of thought about it over the Christmas period and his, his conscience got the better of him. And uh, he phoned up the, his contact at Karlskrona Police 
and uh, admitted everything. So two stories have broken while we've been recording. Can you fill us in on the details, James? Let's start with the verdict from Stockholm District Court in the case of the two brothers accused of spying for Russia, a case we spoke about in more detail a few episodes ago, and we'll post a link back to that episode in the notes. How has the court ruled? Both brothers have been convicted. Paymankia, who's 42, um, who had served in both Sweden's intelligence service, Serpil, and intelligence units in the Swedish army, um, was given a life sentence for spying. The younger brother um, has got nine years and 10 months, which is just slightly less than the prosecutors wanted. They wanted 12 years for him. But this will be considered as a significant victory for the Swedish police and prosecutors. Okay, good. Thanks for that. And the second story concerns Sweden's delivery of arms to Ukraine. The government has previously said that it would send Sweden's advanced archer artillery systems. And we've now got more details about the next planned military aid package. What can you tell us? Yeah, so what we know they're definitely going to send is um, 50 combat vehicle 90s, which is a sort of, not quite a tank, but um, probably the sort of thing that would look to you and me, like a tank. Uh, so that will be sent to Ukraine, 50 of those. And some more N-laws, these, uh, these anti-tank, portable anti-tank missiles. When it comes to the archers, there's less detail on that. Uh, they say that they are going to send archers, or they've, they've given the Swedish Defence Forces the job of um, preparing for the delivery of, these, of, of this archer artillery system, which is one of the things that Ukraine most wants from Sweden. So there are two kinds of archer. There's uh, one that the Swedish army uses, has, has in its sort of active uh, arsenal. And then there's, a, then there's a second kind of archer that is, that's, that's, that's in reserve. And um, it's, this, it's this second kind of archer, the B archer, that's in reserve that, that they are looking at sending to um, Ukraine. But Paul Jonsson, the defence minister, he said he wouldn't be able to say at this stage how many archers will be sent. Great. Thank you. And we'll be writing up those uh, stories on the site and we'll put the links in the show description when they're ready. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you for listening and thank you to our guests, Louise Bengtsson and Noor Ashikin Modtaib. Our panellists this week were Emma Lovegrain, Richard Orange and James Savage. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back again with a new episode of Sweden in Focus next Saturday. Until then, take care. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.